What a fantastic turnout, eh? Marvellous to see you all. Uh, can you hear me? Have I done this at the right? Good. Well, I'm Francesca Clug, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all to this very special edition of Question Time, which I'm honoured to chair on behalf of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights to mark the 60th anniversary of the European Convention on Human Rights coming into force. In the week where the Prime Minister announced that he couldn't rule out withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, you must admit we are nothing if not topical. Now, I may not be David or Jonathan Dimbleby. I'm sorry about that. But with this illustrious panel, I guarantee you all a very lively evening, and I'm going to introduce you to them properly in a short while. But I want to first of all extend a particularly warm welcome to all of you students for which this is the very first week you are studying at the LSE, indeed your very first week of university life. Let's give you all a round of applause. I mean, what a start. You know how to get on, don't you? You know how to carry favour. You're not in the bar. You're here attending an event on your second night. But seriously, I'm really hoping that all of you who believe that there is no topic, nothing, that shouldn't be capable of examination, evaluation and debate, now realise you're absolutely at the right university to study. Before we begin, I'm afraid there's some inevitable housekeeping. So I'm going to have to read this or I'll get it wrong and get told off. The event is being audio recorded and technology permitting, we hope to have a podcast of the lecture and Q&A online early next week. Please turn your phones to silent and we've all turned them off. I said silent because those wishing to comment on the event using Twitter, the suggested hashtag for the event is hashtag LSE. ECHR, and I believe it's behind me on the slide. Now, we're going to finish no later than 8 o'clock, after which you're all warmly invited to join us at a reception outside. But before we do that, we all in this room have some serious work to do. This is not the kind of event to sit back and think of the drinks that are coming before you. Oh, no, no, no. There will be no long speeches from the panel in which you can drift off as if one of us are giving you a lecture. Don't quote me on that. Now, I'm going to be calling on some of you, and of course you know who you are, to ask questions. I, a lot of you have submitted questions. We're really, really grateful to everyone who has done so. Unfortunately, we could only choose a few, and how, long we're how many we're going to be able to use tonight will depend on how succinct our wonderful panel is. And I've been having a little chat with them about this and asking them if they possibly could to keep their answers to two minutes. If they are that kind and do so, then I will be able to ask some of you to come in and respond to some of their answers and perhaps to give a further, further follow-up question. Let's see how we get on. We should also hopefully have a question or two from Twitter. And now what you've all been waiting for, which is my introduction of our panel. So I'm going to start um, with, on my far left, Martin Howe, who is a barrister. A QC, in fact, specialising in intellectual property law, European community law, 
data protection and commercial and public law. Do correct me if I get any of this wrong, Martin. He regularly appears before the European Court of Justice, which I know as you're all clever enough to go into the LSC. I know that every one of you knows that the European Court of Justice is not the same as the European Court of Human Rights, and you can write that to the Sun, the Mail and the Express tomorrow. <laughs> He's also appeared at domestic courts and tribunals, but most relevant for tonight, he was a Conservative appointee on the Coalition Government's Commission on a Bill of Rights, which was set up in 2011 to investigate the creation of a UK Bill of Rights. In 2010, Martin was listed on the Conservative Home website search for 100 peers. I'm sure he'd make an excellent peer. But I was surprised to read that the nomination begins as follows, and you're looking like you don't know this, so it's just as well I'm telling you this. This is how it begins, Martin. It begins as follows. To some, he is the kind of dry conservative lawyer who represents exactly the opposite of the modern conservative party. That's meant to be your nomination. I think maybe Lyndon Crosby needs to have a look at that. But of course the nomination goes on to give a resounding commendation of Martin's excellent work as a QC. Sitting next to Martin is Professor Philip Leach, who is Professor of Human Rights Law at Middlesex University, a solicitor and director of the highly acclaimed European Human Rights Advocacy Centre, also based at Middlesex University. He has extensive experience of presenting applicants before the, representing applicants I should say, before the European Court of Human Rights, in particular against the UK, Turkey and Russia. He's the author of Taking a Case to the European Court of Human Rights, published in 2011. So he knows a thing or two about what we're going to speak about tonight. But when I googled Phil Leach in preparation for tonight, an image came up of a rather big man. I hope he won't mind me saying a rather bigger man than you are. <laughs> Covered in tattoos, snakes and other scary objects like skeletons with large white wristbands all the way down his arms. I was trying to imagine this Phil Leach appearing before the European Court of Human Rights and I wondered if scare tactics was how he was so successful. So you can imagine my absolute relief and delight when this Phil Leach walked in tonight with his rather tasteful suit and uh, trousers and jacket and lovely check shirt, not a skeleton on it. <laughs> Caroline Lucas on my immediate left needs no introduction. She is the MP for Brighton Pavilion and served as leader of the Green Party in England and Wales from 2008 to 2012. In 1999 she was elected as one of the party's first members of the European Parliament until the 2010 general election when she was elected as the first Green MP. A passionate campaigner across a broad range of issues, not least in support of the No More Page 3 campaign, Caroline was named the most influential MP of 2011 by the Political Studies Association. According to a celebrity Q&A website, and I have a feeling I'm going to give you as great a shock as I gave Martin, <laughs> Caroline's earliest memory is of getting into big trouble at nursery for spilling a box of talcum powder on the floor. Is it all coming back to you? I suppose that memory will be somewhat eclipsed now by getting into rather more trouble at the recent anti-fracking protest. I was about to say... <laughs> 
I was about to say an act for which she is widely admired, but you just said that for me, <laughs> even though her nursery teacher has probably said, I knew this is where Caroline was heading at three years old. <laughs> Emily Thornbury MP, on my immediate right, has been the Labour Member of Parliament for Islington South and Finsbury since 2005 and is widely recognised as a very effective and plain-speaking Shadow Attorney General. Under the last Labour government, she was a ministerial aide in the Department of Energy and Climate Change and was subsequently a Shadow Energy and then Health Minister. She took up a current position as Shadow Attorney General in 2011. Before entering Parliament, Emily practised as a successful barrister at the renowned Human Rights Chambers of Mike Mansfield QC, which we learnt last week has had to close down because of legal aid cuts. According to Emily's website, as an earnest young campaigner, she once accosted a graffiti artist and lectured him about his social responsibility. <laughs> You're all relying on me tonight to find out so much about yourself. Apparently, he turned round and punched her. <laughs> it doesn't say what she did next, but I'm absolutely sure she acted with dignity and decorum and didn't do a John Prescott. You didn't punch him back, did you? She just cried. <laughs> Finally, last but not least, my colleague, Professor Alan Sked. Alan is a professor of international history here at the LSE. He's a world expert on the Habsburg Empire and has published widely, including the Penguin History of Post-War Britain, 1945 to 1992. Alan first entered politics as a teenager and joined the Liberal Party. He has gone on to found not just one, but two political parties, First, I think you will all have heard about, as it has had quite a lot of publicity recently. It's called the UK Independence Party, or, or UKIP. Although Alan has now gone on record to say that he considers that party racist and anti-intellectual. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. Couldn't possibly. <laughs> the second, much more recently formed party is called New Deal which he describes as a new he describes it as a new Eurosceptic party of the centre-left. Now, although not mentioned in the biographical details Alan provided to us, the last time he and I shared a platform here at the LSE, Alan founded this new party. He launched it. He had launched it on the platform when I was meant to be giving my speech. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that Alan is the party animal of this platform. <laughs> I give you my panel. So now if you're all sitting comfortably, let us begin with our title question for tonight. What has the European Convention on Human Rights ever done for us? Why do we ask this question? Phil Leach. What has the European Convention on Human Rights ever done for us? Thank you, Francesca. Well, um, I want to start by reminding us all about where the Convention came from. Of course, it was an absolutely integral part of the response of Europe to the human rights atrocities of the, of the Second World War. And since that time, over 60 years, it has provided a 
fundamental human rights safety net for the whole of Europe. Now 47 states, 800 million people across the whole of Europe, as is often said. But speaking particularly about the UK, it's also true to say that for the UK, through the decisions both of the European Court and also of national courts applying the Convention on Human Rights, it's provided essential uh, uh, protections for, for many, many, many people, including many very vulnerable people. And without wanting to sound a little bit like John Cleese, some examples uh, that come to mind are the laws that were introduced to protect people from totally unregulated uh, intrusive surveillance. The laws that have been introduced to protect the right, uphold the rights of LG, the LGBT community. I'm thinking about the criminalisation of homosexuality. I'm thinking about the, uh, the, the, the right to marry of, of, of transgender people. I'm thinking about this discrimination in the armed forces. All of those changes have come from convention, the convention and, it, and its application in Europe or in national decisions. One other strain that I wanted to also mention that's often not talked about, actually there's a very, very important strain of cases about victims' rights, and it's not something that is, comes up a lot. If you take the, 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 the very famous Osman case, the Osman case is all about the extent to which there are obligations on the police and on public bodies in this country now to, to take positive steps to protect people who are at risk. And Osman has been, uh, has been implied in numerous other contexts, both domestically and across Europe. For example, in the, in the context of domestic violence, where there is a known risk, what's, what reasonable steps should the state take to protect people? Very, very fundamental rights. There are other examples, as John Cleese would tell you, the freedom of expression of the media, the absolute prohibition on torture, and uh, a whole series of protections introduced in relation to the investigation of uh, fatal incidents. Our inquest system has changed. Uh, there have been, there's a new regime for investigating fatal incidents in this country. But finally, if I've still got time in my two minutes, Francesca, I also wanted to answer this question in a way, in a European way. What's it done for us as Europeans? And this is where I want to talk a little bit about our work representing applicants before the court. It's going to have to be a little bit. It'll be very, very brief. Just one example from, from Chechnya. Uh, a woman called Kayedi Mikhauri, in living in Grozny in 1999, left the, the, the fighting uh, in, in Grozny, uh, returned several months later when she heard it was uh, safe uh, to do so, was accosted by Russian soldiers. She was blindfolded, taken away with two, two of her friends, her neighbours, and they were shot. Uh, they were left for dead. She was covered with a burning mattress. Uh, miraculously, Kayedi Mikhauri survived. Her two friends did not. And she was able to uh, crawl away. She was able to get help and hide in a cellar. And, and seven years later, she was able to take her case to take the Russian government to the European Court of Human Rights and, and succeed. That's uh, access to justice, and it's a, it's a fundamental human right for all of us across Europe, not just in the UK. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Phil. Alan, would you say that John Cleese is right, that the European Convention has brought peace, or is it only in this country that it seems to bring war? Uh, I hadn't realised it brought peace or war, uh, is that, and that escaped me. But, but what I would say is I agree mainly with the previous speaker. Uh, it would be nice to think that human rights are so well protected in the United Kingdom that we don't need any added protection. However, uh, clearly a legislation has been necessary. We have a, a rather modest 
um, system of protection uh, under the 1919 Human Rights Act. Uh, all judges have to review legislation in the light uh, of human rights. If they find the legislation is deficient, then they can uh, pronounce a declaration of incompatibility, uh, and thereafter you can either amend or you could repeal the section of the legislation at fault. Uh, parliamentary sovereignty uh, isn't disregarded in this respect, therefore. Uh, we're not in a situation where I say in the United States where the Supreme Court can actually strike down uh, legislation altogether. Uh, that doesn't apply here. Uh, it would apply actually to legislation in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, however, because that, if it was in uh, conflict with human rights, uh, the, 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 the Human Rights Act would be declared ultra vires. Uh, it's the British Parliament uh, that has the right to think again. Uh, and I think in something as absolutely important as human rights, it's right that we should uh, have possible area, grey areas pointed out by, by judges uh, and then uh, politicians in Parliament can think again and decide either to amend or repeal uh, the legislation. So I'm, I'm fairly satisfied with what's happened. I don't think we live in an extreme system whereby uh, judges or foreign bodies uh, dictate to us in any way over human rights. I, I think we've got a moderate and perfectly fairly satisfactory system uh, whereby abuses can be pointed out and remedied and it is absolutely necessary in any free society that human rights abuses are remedied. So. Thank you, Alan. The most fascinating thing to sh about sharing a platform with Alan is that you never know what he's going to say in advance. I had absolutely no idea that that was going to be the answer to this question. <laughs> Which the right one. <laughs> <laughs> I make no comment as an impartial chair, but I would like to ask Emily her view on this question. Um, I think as you, as you begin to study law, you will learn something which I have to say many politicians, either if they ever did know it, um, they forget it, which is that the, in this country the rule of law is above everything. So no one is above the law, even if they're the Prime Minister. If the law says they're not allowed to do something and a court says they're not allowed to do something, they are not allowed to do it. It doesn't matter how powerful they are, it doesn't matter how upset they are, it doesn't matter how much they stamp their kit in the heels, they're not allowed to do it. And that has been our system and it is quite right that it has been and it is something we are incredibly proud of. And it is something which, which we as a, we, 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 I certainly think is one of the, when people always say what is the essence of Britishness, I think that that is one of the things which is the essence of us as a country and I think it's something that we should hold, hold firm to. And, and I think that the, the development of the idea of human rights actually comes from our Britishness and from many British lawyers have played a very important part in the idea of human rights. And human rights are basically about the fact that we're all equal. You know, in the law we're all supposed to be equal and there are certain rights that we just get just from being people, just from being alive. And those, those rights are above everything else. And so that is why we have a European court that will impose, ensure that those rights are looked at properly in Britain or across the whole of Europe. And if you want to be, if you want to sign up to the, to, the, to the convention, you sign up, but you have to stick to those rules, even if you don't like it. And what we've done in Britain is that we've essentially imported what we signed up to in Europe and brought it into the Human Rights Act in this country. 
Now, unfortunately, because certain politicians don't like what has been said about the Human Rights Act and about some of their actions in accordance with the Human Rights Act, they want to abolish the Human Rights Act. And they're essentially doing a kind of Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland and saying, off with their heads and we're going to leave Europe too, if that is necessary. I have to say I think it would be a very dark day for this country if that is what has happened and I hope that over the next few years as you study law and you look at what happens you will see that the Human Rights Act, that Europe has done a great deal of good for us and we should make sure that we stand firm to it because all of our rights are defended. Martin, you're also a barrister. Would you agree with Emily that it's the European Convention on Human Rights is an essential part of the rule of law? Uh, no, I don't. Um, and let me raise an extremely fundamental question. Uh, the European Convention on Human Rights was, uh, uh, as Philip has pointed out, introduced uh, after the war as a bulwark for the protection of fundamental rights and a bulwark against the return of fascism and totalitarianism. And we can all agree that the sort of atrocities he referred to in Chechnya are appalling abuses of human rights. Where you get into a problem area uh, is when you get to far less clear-cut cases, uh, when it is a matter of considerable controversy whether or not something constitutes a breach of human rights. And let me just give one example which is topically current uh, the uh, right of or right or not right of prisoners to vote and uh, what we have to ask the, the system introduced by the convention uh, with the Strasbourg court uh, is a system of uh, international supervision of the conduct of states uh, it binds the states and you have to ask why is it constitutionally democratically valid for states to be bound by the convention and by rulings of the Strasbourg court and the answer is it is because the states by their democratic processes have signed up to it but what they have signed up to is the convention uh, and the convention has a text uh, and uh, what has happened over the period of 60 years uh, is that we have had applied to us not the convention as originally conceived but the convention with a super added superstructure of uh, rules, doctrines etc developed uh, largely by judges in Strasbourg under various headings and doctrines, dynamic interpretation and a living instrument and I regard that as a serious problem as regards both uh, democracy constitutional propriety and indeed the rule of law. Um, the current president of the court uh, uh, in his visit to England earlier this year pointed out that it is an affront to the rule of law if governments do not obey judgments of the court. Um, I, I agree with that proposition. However, when we look at the rule of law, there is another part of it um, and that is the necessity for courts to arrive at judgments by applying objective rules laid down for them that they are constitutionally uh, entitled and obliged to apply uh, and not uh, applying rules uh, and doctrines uh, that they have dreamt up uh, which have not been uh, approved uh, or, or by their constitutional body whatever that is. 
Uh, I'm afraid this is a, a problem um, all over the world. You only need to look at the US Supreme Court to see what happens with judge-made doctrines and the problems it creates. Sadly, I fear the Strasbourg Court uh, has gone a very long way down that road. Um, and uh, uh, as far as I can see, uh, the rule of law is not the same as ruled by judges according to the judges' discretion uh, of what they think are, are perhaps they think are better rules uh, than, than are in the convention itself. Um, uh, they maybe think they're superior rules, uh, but the states who are parties to the convention have not agreed to bind themselves uh, to those doctrines, and in my view it is wrong for the court to seek to impose them. Uh, the prisoner voting issue, I think, Martin, is particularly I, I, egregious. I know David Dibbleby does this, so I know I'm allowed to, which is yeah. I've had a bit yeah. of a preview of the question, so okay. I know the prisoner voting issue is going to okay, come well, up. Okay, well, I'll mention that so later. But, uh, I just could ask to say, you to draw this bit to the con a conclusion, because you made your point extremely well. But uh, the problem is that what has happened has destroyed the cross-party political consensus in favour of the rights in the convention as interpreted by the Strasbourg Court. There's thank, still thank a you. party thank convention for the rights themselves but not for the interpretation. Thank you, that's very clear. So Caroline, the rights are okay but it's the superstructure created by the judges that is the problem. Well my starting point is the fairly obvious one that rights are universal and inalienable and they belong to everyone and that bit about everyone is the crucial bit because that includes people that we don't like very much um, like Abu Qatada for example and he was particularly um, uh, difficult for, for Theresa May to, to uh, allow to have human rights for example and so the idea that we couldn't just extradite him to somewhere where you know, he may be subject to evidence that had been got under torture was by the by it was an inconvenience. Um, and great embarrassment uh, to the government. And I think that a lot of the um, opposition that we're seeing to um, the, the European Convention is actually about, about the inconvenience of having to apply rights uh, to everybody. And we'll come to that in a moment as well when it comes to, uh, to prisoners. M my position is that that's precisely the value of it, that it applies to everybody, including people that we uh, might not uh, particularly support or, or sympathise with. In terms of, of what... Um, the uh, ECHR has done for us, I mean I think it has protected and promoted our rights and freedoms, I think it's given us a shared understanding of what's acceptable and what's not, I think it's made it easier uh, to hold people to account. I think it's resulted in a positive social impact in terms of things like rulings that have made clear that young people should be protected from suffering serious assault in detention facilities. I think it's had a positive impact on the way that various organs of government function including around issues around openness and uh, accountability. But the bit perhaps I'd like to add, um, which I think has been implicit in what others have said, is, is, is the signal it gives around the world um, about seriousness with which we deal with human rights. I think it's very difficult for us to lecture other countries that may have uh, much worse human rights abuses than ourselves if we don't bind ourselves by um, a, a convention of human rights ourselves and I think that our authority would be hugely undermined if we were seen to be withdrawing uh, at this point as, as the government seems to be um, suggesting and so I, I, I am deeply worried about the signal that that gives out to other countries if it saw uh, a country like the UK um, move away uh, from this framework I think that if you think about um, subjects of, of secret rendition if you think about um, victims of domestic violence, of human trafficking, if you think about people languishing in, in human uh, 
uh, prisons. I think that to ensure that we maintain a strong and independent human rights court for the whole of Europe is, is hugely important for all of those people in all of those difficult situations, wherever they are in the world. And so I very much agree with, with Emily when she said it would be a dark day for this country if we move away from that. But I think it would be a dark day uh, for the rest of the world as well if they saw a country like ourselves doing that. What message does that give to many other countries around the world for whom human rights are simply an inconvenience? Thank you, Caroline. Great start from all our panel. I think you'll agree. And now we, this is the moment where we start to involve all of you. So our next question, question two, is from Brianna Burt. Can you stand up, Brianna? And the stewards will give you a mic. Brianna is an MSc <coughs> human rights student here at the LSE, and she has a question for our panel. Hi. Um, the Home Secretary told the Conservative Party conference yesterday that, quote, if leaving the European Convention is what it takes to fix our human rights laws, then that is what we should do, end quote. Is she right? Thank you. Martin. Is the Home Secretary of the Conservative Party correct in saying that if it's necessary to fix our human rights laws to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, we should? Uh, yes, I believe she is um, entirely right. Um, now, that is not to say that there aren't things that can be done first or tried first uh, to attempt to deal with some of the problems. But uh, I think we come back to the, the fundamental problem. It's, it's, it's very easy, as Caroline says, to uh, say uh, rights are universal uh, and inalienable. Um, I think the American Declaration of Independence said it was self-evident <laughs> that uh, certain rights are inalienable. Uh, the problem is how do you interpret the scope of these universal and inalienable rights? This leads to legitimate disagreement once you move away uh, from the core of the uh, uh, abuses that everyone would recognise as being uh, breaches of human rights. Uh, and we now have a scenario where a number of very serious problems have arisen from the way in which human rights are interpreted. Um, the particular one uh, most focused on uh, by Theresa May uh, being that the problems arising from deporting people who frankly should not be in this country and should be removed uh, and uh, having uh, the, the way the rights have been interpreted and applied, particularly the Article 8 rights, um, has created serious problems. Uh, so I, I would say we, we must try and tackle these problems by a less drastic uh, method than leaving the Convention, uh, but if they cannot be tackled within the confines of the Convention, then certainly we as a country should contemplate leaving the Convention. That is not to say that we abandon human rights or the principles laid down in the Convention. Uh, uh, we should certainly uh, adopt and enforce them, and I, my own belief uh, is that we need uh, internally, for our own purposes, uh, a Bill of Rights that lays down rights that imposes uh, restraints on the Executive and, to some extent, self-imposed restraints on Parliament. Thank you. Emily. Um, do you think our human rights laws need fixing, particularly regarding deportation? And would you say that if we can't do that, we should leave the European Convention as a result? I think that um, I think Theresa May is very badly wrong on this. Um, I think, first of all, can I just deal with, with, uh, with, with the point that, um, that was made um, by uh, Philip earlier? Oh, sorry. Martin earlier, um, and he was saying about, about leaving the, um, the Court of Human Rights because 
um, because of the superstructure which has been established on top of it by judges. You know, that the rights themselves are fine, but it's just kind of the way the judges have been interpreting it, which is all wrong, and what with them being Europeans and everything and not being British, it's a kind of real issue. Um, but I mean, it does seem to me that actually, you know, for, for, I'm surprised to hear that from another lawyer, because, because you know, we have as our system, we have, you know, and we continue to have as our system, we have statute and we have what's called common law. And common law, you know, is made by judges is judges interpreting either statute or indeed developing law over the centuries and it is judge-made law and it is judge-made law which is entirely appropriate. Now it seems to me to be there's an essential contradiction at the heart of what's being said here because what's being said is let's leave Strasbourg, <coughs> let's leave the, the European Court of Human Rights and let's have our own Bill of Rights but the question is for these Tories whenever they say let's have our own British Bill of Rights well that sounds great doesn't it? What's in it? What's different? What's different to the, to, the, to the Human Rights Act? What do you want that isn't in it? What do you want to take out? I mean, I'd quite like to take out, you know, put in maybe the right to jury trial, but frankly, apart from that, I can't see what's missing. And, I, and it seems to me that there's an awful lot of nonsense. And part of the problem is this. Right? This is the Guardian. Right? This is the Guardian's assessment of what Theresa May said, said yesterday. And you see what's in the top third of the Guardian yesterday? It's not an assessment of you know, her interpretation of what's wrong with the Human Rights Act or the fact that she, con she confuses Abu Qatada with the... With, and I think she... I, I can read out the bit that she says. The sentence is, she confuses Abu Qatada and the difficulty that she was having deporting Abu Qatada, which we know. The reason we couldn't deport Abu Qatada was because we were having problems with the Jordanians not being able to show us that the evidence that was going to be put, put into the court hadn't been extracted by torture, which, you know, we're against. Um, so because of, the, because of the problem that she was having in relation to that, she gets upset. But if you read what she says at Tory party conference, she basically talks about Abu Qatada and then rides into it, into that sentence, the right to family life. You remember her interpretation of the right to family life and of the fact that we have cats? You know, I mean, and nobody ever holds her to account. And the Guardian has a photograph of her shoes. You know, it has a photograph of her shoes. I have a piece in the mail as well where a third of it is about what she wears. You know, these people need to be held to account. They need to be said exactly when you say this, what do you mean? When you claim this, it is not true, is it? When you claim that this, you know, that, that people are being allowed to stay in this country because they have a tabby cat or because they're growing a slightly large cheese plant, this is not true and you need to tell the public the truth because if you don't, then you will get the nonsense that we get in the press and, peop and people will begin to turn their back on the Human Rights Act and on Strasbourg and believe that it is because of Strasbourg that we're not, you know, that the, that the price of fuel is going up too much or whatever nonsense they will be and we have to stop this and we have to be allowed to argue against. Okay, thank you. later with, a with another yes. question to specifically answer, and I think it's fair that you should have that chance, even if you go over to your two minutes, to answer Emily's challenge to you, what would be in this Bill of Rights. So hold fire uh, for well, now, because it will come up in another uh, question. Okay, my proposal is actually published in part two of the report of the Bill of Rights Commission. But they may they not... personally proposed text. Yeah, but I don't want them to all rush out now and get it. I want them to stay in here. So I'm going to give you a chance for... <laughs> to come back. Then, Alan, could you, um, could you tell us whether you agree with the Home Secretary's announcement yesterday? And once again, I have no idea what you're going to say, so it's very exciting. 
Uh, well, as the leader of a Eurosceptic party, and you can find it at www.newdealparty.org.uk. Um, no more I've advertising to, oh tonight, God, thank you, panel. I've had to think very seriously about this. As someone who's very sensitive to the notion of national uh, sovereignty and who wants Britain to withdraw from the European Union, uh, when it comes to the European Court of Human Rights and the Declaration, honestly, I, I, I've read it and reread it. And for the life of me, if the Tories are going to produce a new version, I can't think what they're going to put in it or how different it's going to be. I would have thought uh, that if it were going to be rewritten, you might beef it up. I mean, you might get rid of uh, Article 5, Section 1E, which talks about permitting the lawful detention of persons of unsound mind, alcoholics and drug addicts and vagrants. I don't see the super right to pick them up and put them in jail, so I might get rid of that bit. But uh, the, the real problem, as uh, Emily has said before, is if the Tories don't like individual judgments by judges, and then this applies to judges at any level, whether it's Strasbourg or uh, in London or elsewhere, what are you going to do? Are you going to rewrite every law or every convention of human rights because you don't like the judge's interpretation of it? Are you going to you know, say you'll only appoint judges who are not independent, but judges who only agree with a conservative interpretation of human rights or a particular piece of legislation. You can't go around and be in the, what I think is a rather silly position that the Tories and Theresa May in particular have got themselves into is saying, well, you know, there aren't all that many cases, but the ones that do, you know, uh, the thing about, you know, respect for a private and family life, well, I think we'd all be in favour of that. But, you know, this judge has said that, you know, some Arabs got the same right. No, we don't like this. We really want to deport him. Um, why get about it? I mean, you have rights that are human and apply to everybody, or you don't. You have judges who you appoint because they're legal experts and they do their jobs and you let them get on with it. And for the Home Secretary to suddenly have a hissy fit just because uh, a couple of uh, cases she was involved in didn't go her way, well, that's tough. I mean, if you go to law, you know, either the jury, you know, it says you're guilty when you think you're innocent, or the judge uh, rules one way around the way, way you expect. But you can't go around always wanting to change laws, change judges, change everything just because it didn't work out the way you wanted. And I really think the Tory party should grow up. <laughs> Caroline, I imagine you weren't entirely in agreement with the Home Secretary either. Am I wrong about that? No, I was just thinking what a good thing it is we've got Martin on the panel, otherwise we might all be uh, agreeing far too much with one another. That's why we've got Martin on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree very much with what uh, Emily and, and Alan have said. And um, I was looking at uh, some of the context for what uh, Theresa May was saying yesterday, and it seems she's singling out um, appeal rights for um, destruction in particular, appeal rights when um, you know, she's trying to deport people back to places where they may indeed face torture and all those other things. And actually when you look, as I'm sure some of you have, at the quality of first instance decision making on immigration cases, then the idea that you're not going to allow appeal or the appeal can't happen until they've been uh, sent back to places where they may well be facing torture or whatever, I think is, is, is horrifying because as, as far as I can see, it seems that about half of all decisions are overturned on appeal. In other words, around 45% of people win their appeals when they are trying not to be uh, deported um, somewhere. So if you've got such a, a poor quality of, of initial decision making, the idea of striking out that right to appeal um, and, and basically making it far more um, 
uh, difficult to, to, to access and, and possibly, you know, if you've just been uh, deported to somewhere where you're uh, at risk, then, then maybe making yourself extremely visible and trying to seek an appeal is not what you're going to be uh, wanting to do. I think that, that's incredibly dangerous. And so um, she is completely wrong about this. It sounds like we're about to have a, a question about what, what should be or what could be in a Bill of Rights that would be different, a British Bill of Rights, from uh, what's in the, uh, the current one. I mean, there's a debate to be had about whether we could improve the current one and, and you know, there are some extra things that we could add to it, but the dangers of doing that I just think are so enormous because there would be far more forces who would be interested in trying to destroy what's already there than would be behind the idea of, of adding to and making it better and stronger. So I think this is enormously dangerous. I think it sends out a, a very negative signal um, and I think that she should just, um, yeah, scrap it. Before bringing Phil in, I'd like to bring you all in. I'd like a show of hands to see who thinks that our human rights laws do need fixing. And I'm not going to pretend this is an entirely representative sample of the population, but it's a reasonably representative sample of the LSE, I hope. So I'd like to see a show of hands who thinks our current human rights laws need fixing. How many people? And would one of you be brave enough to give us a comment as to why? Thank you. Uh, Angela Ellis-Jones, I stood as a UKIP candidate in Kensington and Chelsea in 1997 and as Alan knows quite well, I'm not at all racist or anti-intellectual. I strongly endorse what Martin Howe had to say. I think you do have to distinguish between the convention as it was written in 1951 by conservative lawyers indeed and the way it has been interpreted in more recent times. Um, I, and I see the pivotal case uh, as being the case of Marx in 1979 in which a Belgian woman complained about the laws in Belgium regarding illegitimacy and the decision of the court was overwhelmingly in favour of uh, a very novel interpretation which uh, looked at Article 8 and considered that it was relevant to uh, cast doubt on the validity of the Belgian laws. And there was one dissentient from that decision and that was the British judge, Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, who considered that Article 8 was all about the knock on the door at the quiet of night and to make sure that that could never happen to anyone in homes in Europe again. Whereas the majority of judges considered that Article 8 was all about equality and um, private life and invalidating the rules about illegitimacy. And they didn't consider that perhaps those rules had a very important purpose, um, which was to safeguard the traditional family, which as all the research now shows is the best matrix for bringing up of children. So from the late 1970s, we do see this very clear ideological shift of the judges. And Emily Thornberry might like to consider whether um, in the 1960s, whether Article 8 would have been interpreted the way it has been recently to allow a man who was an illegal immigrant, who had goodness knows how many children in this country by goodness knows how many women, to stay here on the grounds that he had, um, he had a right um, okay, I think you've made for family reasons, would the judges in the 60s have upheld his claim? The answer is definitely no. From what I remember of the 60s, I can tell you that's absolutely nothing compared to what went on, and I was... <laughs> <laughs> you were there. 
and I'm glad to say that the fact that I remember it means that I was a child in the 60s rather than of the 60s because I, I, I was there and I do remember it. Um, Phil, could you perhaps comment on Article 8? Is it as worrying as has been suggested in your view? It, it's not. Um, and, and, and to go back to Rihanna's question, uh, um, Theresa May is, is profoundly wrong about this. Uh, withdrawing from the Convention is, in my view, utterly unthinkable. No democracy has done that in 60 years. The only state that has withdrawn from the Convention was, was Greece in the late 60s under, under a, after a military coup by a regime that was involved with torture and internment. So we would be putting ourselves on a par with with that. The, uh, the, what we're hearing in this country particularly, and it's not being replicated across Europe, is a, is a wholly misleading and ag exaggerated attack on the credibility of the Convention and the Court. Yeah. And Article 8 is a, is a the, the, the stuff that's been talked about Article 8 is, is a classic example. Uh, so it's said that there is a, a overuse of Article 8 to protect, protect criminals from being deported. If you look at the figures, first of all, 90x uh, percent of challenges of that nature fail. It's something between 90 and 98 percent in recent years that are the figures that I've looked at. Secondly, the, both the domestic courts and the Strasbourg court apply a very, very considered approach to the application of Article 8. These cases are incredibly fact-dependent. You have to look at the nature and the seriousness of the offence. You have to look at the nature of the links of the, of the person and their family to the, to, the, to the UK and also to their ties to the other country. So it's a very context-dependent decision. There is no great problem that's, uh, that, that's, being, that's being talked about. The numbers are clear about that. Very, very few of these cases are successful. Francesca, before you move on to the next question, I found the quote I was looking for. I promise to be really, really okay, quick. Okay, I'm going to take 30 seconds off okay. your next answer. Okay. You may go no, ahead. No, no, I'll be really quick with the next one. So, okay, so this is, this is, a, this is from the Daily Mail, so it must be true. Um, <laughs> and it's just before they go on for the next sort of, you know, 200 words about what she's wearing. And they say, they quote her, and they say, last year human rights were cited in almost 10,000 immigration appeal cases. So the second thing we will do is to extend the number of non-suspensive appeals. That means that where there is no serious, serious and irreversible harm, we should deport foreign criminals and hear their appeals later. Now, what the point of read that about is, she's essentially saying 10,000 immigration appeals are essentially just foreign criminals. Yeah, and, and she says that, and she's allowed to get away with it, and the next paragraph is about, Theresa May was dressed for business. You know, there is no challenge to these people when they say things like that and they're allowed to get away with it. That was the quote I was looking for. I do have figures here on deportations because I'm trying to do the David Dimbleby role really, really well, but I don't think I've got time to read them out. But just <laughs> suffice to say that it's slightly different figures than the ones that were in the Daily Mail and come and see me afterwards if you want them. <laughs> okay, I think we should move on to a Twitter question just now. And can the uh, stewards please bring the microphone to our Twitter guru, my colleague Amy Williams in the front, because we did ask people to send in questions by Twitter. And Amy has got one. I have a question from Benjamin Ward from Human Rights Watch. He asks, how would withdrawing from the European Convention affect the UK's place in the world and what signal would it send to other Council of Europe states? Alan, are you worried about uh, what signal it would send to count other Council of Europe states? Is that something that preoccupies you at all? Uh, yes, you're a skeptic? it would worry me because, you know, all the, the countries, the English-speaking countries whose law systems are based on the 17th century 
uh, British law, I mean, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, South Africa, America, they, they, they all have uh, human rights uh, acts or the equivalent, some of them better entrenched than ours. Uh, Australia doesn't have a national one, the provincial parts of Australia have uh, of human rights acts. I, I think it would be a dreadful example. I mean, especially if we weren't going to replace it by some brilliant Tory uh, e equivalent or, you know, Martin's suggestions or whatever, uh, some document that we could say was obviously, obviously uh, better than the one that, that was drawn up in 1950. Um, no, I, people would wonder why is this the only part of the free world that feels it's necessary not to be part of the protection of human rights. I mean, it, it would look like a rush of blood to the head or something. I mean, it, you know, you can say, I mean, with regard to the European Union, there's an overwhelming case to come out, but with regard to the European Convention on Human Rights, well, you know, everybody needs their rights protected. You could say, look at Kenya, <laughs> which has problems with its president and his human rights record, or, or, or Syria or somewhere. Well, these places should be allowed to protect their own human rights. Why would you have an external body trying to uh, interfere in human rights in Syria or Kenya or somewhere else? Well, it's obvious. You know, if your human rights aren't working, the last people you want to actually enforce them is the government that's undermining them. Well, thank you, Alan. I mean, Martin, when we asked Alan onto the panel, I must admit, we thought you two might have more similar views than your <laughs> Now, Alan has made a distinction between withdrawal from the EU and withdrawal from the ECHR, and indeed your own Attorney General, uh, Dominic Grieve, has said that it would make us a pariah state if we withdrew from the European Convention on Human Rights. Well, uh, what is your view? Uh, well, I, I, I think uh, I'm amazed by some of these arguments, frankly. Um, you know, when I last checked, um, neither Australia nor New Zealand, nor Canada, all of whom have systems for the protection of fundamental rights, were members of the European Convention on Human Rights. No, other international... No, none of those countries... Well, they're not... No, 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 uh, uh, individual cases being taken there, uh, reviewing their own systems and effectively, effectively um, uh, overturning uh, the decisions of their own courts. Uh, I do not accept um, that you cannot be perfectly respectably enforcing and protecting fundamental rights without being part of the Strasbourg system. And I'll tell you why there's a fundamental difference between the analogy of the common law um, and uh, the judges of the Strasbourg Court and what they're doing with the Convention. Yes, our judges interpret and apply the common law, um, but the common law uh, is subject to revision by Parliament under our domestic system. The problem with the Strasbourg system is there is no mechanism for democratic review and correction of the direction taken by the Strasbourg Court uh, in the interpretation of the Convention. That's the fundamental problem. Um, and unless one can think of some international mechanism uh, for achieving that, uh, I fear uh, that the, the, the only way, um, as it were, uh, to make our views clear and possibly lead to reform the court itself may at the end of the day be to withdraw from it. And I, I do not agree it is anything comparable to Greece 
um, which uh, withdrew under pressure because of what it was doing under the, the junta. Um, I, I think if we withdraw because we're objecting to the way the uh, convention has been interpreted, I think that will be a sanitary lesson both to that court and to indeed to other international No, Alan, you've had your say. I, I, I noticed today that the South China Morning Post covered Theresa May's speech yesterday. So this certainly seems to be having an impact on other states around the world. We just got a, you've just got a, a, an applause, Martin. Would anyone who just applauds Martin like to say something from the audience about why they agree that this is not a concern of ours if we withdrew from the European Convention on Human Rights? This would not be a, a significant statement to other human rights abusing countries around the world. So anyone would like to back up that view? I just want to see a show of hands and then I'll choose someone. Anyone else? Okay, I saw you first, sir, in green. I've got quite a loud voice, so I'd polish the um, yeah, I don't could really you, think. Could, it was could you say who you are and where you come uh, from? Everyone Ali please. Stark. I'm a language student at the Confucius Institute, attached to the LSE. Um, I don't think it would have a deleterious effect on our international standing to withdraw, um, because of something actually that Alan Sked wrote in a letter to the Spectator a couple of weeks ago, when he was defending the fact that he had changed parties a couple of times, and he said, "Well, I will let my conscience be my defence." It doesn't matter if you change parties, I'm just supporting my own principles and I'm happy with that. I think similarly, if Britain were to withdraw, our own collective conscience would be our defence because our human rights would go on being protected. We'd be arguably the freest, most peaceful country in the world. It doesn't matter if we're signatories to the document or not. Our conscience would be our defence. We'd be Britain. We'd stand tall in the world protecting human rights, whether or not we're a member of it or not, in the words okay. of Alan Sked. So. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Phil, you have a lot of experience of other countries in Europe. What impact do you think it would have? I was going to say, Theresa there? Mays, what she was saying was also reported in, in Russia. Um, I, I think this, this would be a, a disastrous step. The UK, after all, was one of the first signatories. The UK, if you talk to officials in Strasbourg, the Strasbourg officials say that generally the UK has been uh, a, um, a very strong supporter of human rights through the court, the implementation of court judgments over the years. Generally, it's been a, very good, it's been a leader. Uh, and to change that and to move from that to uh, withdrawal would be uh, disastrous. I was at an event recently where Lord McNally was talking about the prisoners' votes. Uh, Lord issue. McNally being the Justice Sec Minister yes. from the Lib Dems yes. in the coalition government. Thank you. And uh, Lord McNally was complaining about the, the Russians were empathising with him over the, the UK's position on prisoner, prisoner voting rights, and it wasn't a comfortable position for, be, for him to be in. Uh, but that's, uh, that's the situation that this, this creates, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's an unthinkable decision. Caroline, anything to add to, to, to this? Well, only perhaps to, to respond to the gentleman, I'm sorry, in, in green. Um, just to say, I guess I don't share his, his uh, enormous confidence in the ability of Britain to safeguard all of our rights irrespective of having uh, a European Convention on Human Rights there as, as, as a wider framework. And I think if you look at what this government's doing in terms of, of human rights, we've got every reason to be uh, concerned. This is a, a coalition government that is trying to push through um, the whole issue of secret courts. Uh, it's a coalition government that is slashing um, uh, legal aid, for example, for people. So this idea that we can be entirely confident um, in, in, in the British ability to uphold all of our rights, 
without you know, taking notice of what this government is doing and indeed what previous governments have done on things like uh, extraordinary rendition or you know, the sending of people like Baba uh, Armour and, and Tala Arsen and, and this coalition government uh, extradited under, under very unsatisfactory conditions um, to the US to face charges when we could have been properly looked at here in the UK. You know, we, we should not be so supremely confident, sadly, about our own human rights here to feel that we don't need uh, that wider framework. I think, sadly, that we do. This is proof, by the way, that they do not know the questions because what Caroline just said leads on perfectly to our next question. And Emily has just forfeited her right to answer this question, has agreed with her not very cruel and unusual punishment because I let her speak outside her turn and quote from the Daily Mail and none of them will try that again. <laughs> so, our next question is from Shoeb Khan. Can you put your hand up please, Shoeb? Excellent. Uh, he's a lawyer and the steward is giving him the microphone so he can ask his question. Thanks. Um, without the ECHR or the HRA, how can any government be prevented from enacting laws that fall below certain standards of humanity and decency? Or does the panel believe that it is impossible that any laws enacted by a democratically elected government would ever be fall below any such standards? Emily, your government never fell below standards of decency, did it? We introduced the Human Rights Act, guys. You know, we introduced we the Human it. Rights Act. No, no, listen. We in introduced the Human Rights Act, and within the Human Rights Act, it gives it gives judges the power to look at a statute and to say, is this compatible with the Human Rights Act? And if it's not, then the government should look again. I mean, it's you know, it is kind of imp that's important, and that has been a very important check and balance. I, you know, I'm on record of not being a great fan of all the things that the previous Labour government did. And everyone knows that, I think. Um, but, uh, but I think that I think that we we absolutely have to be very careful. Whatever government you have, um, when you have a government that has such power, there has to be things that are bulwarks for the individual. And I think that the Human Rights Act, and I think that the fact that we're, we're signatories to the Convention, are very important ways in which we defend ourselves. I think that there are other very important things that we use to defend ourselves. I think access to judicial review is really important. I think that the development of judicial review in this country over the last couple of decades has been a, a, a very important development in our constitution. And I am profoundly worried about the way in which this government is undermining uh, the ability of individuals to access judicial review. I spoke to a solicitor a couple, last week and she said that uh, you know, probably she's written, because quite often you just need to threaten judicial review and the authorities will back down. So she said that she'd just been a high street solicitor dealing with everything and she'd written 200 letters to various authorities saying if you don't do this, if you don't do the right thing, we're going to judicially review you. I mean this is the power of the law. And then people backed off and she said she'd only ever taken two cases to court. You know, so we're talking about cases where you have a homeless family standing outside a homeless office and the local authority saying we don't think they're homeless and you can do something about that and this government is changing the ability for people to be able to get legal aid, to get a solicitor, to write a letter to the authorities. They're changing access to judicial review because they do not want to be held to account. Now, I think the Human Rights Act is really important. I think it's really important that we're signatories to the Convention, but I also think there are many other things that are under attack and don't even get me started on legal aid. You know, I just think that actually, you know, those of you who are becoming lawyers in this room, you know, it is a fine profession. You will be laughed at. People will have a go at you, but it is a fine profession. It's a very important part of our democracy because in the end, I don't think we can pass power to, to the government and just say, we trust you. Why should we? 
Thank you, Emily. Martin, I believe that you think that it's the case that there should be uh, some sort of supervision of what democratically elected uh, governments do or you wouldn't support a, a Bill of Rights. So this is really your opportunity to explain to us why you're opposed to the Human Rights Act but would support the idea of a Bill of, Bill of Rights even though you were very concerned not just about the Human Rights Act but the American Bill of Rights you um, were quoting before. Yeah, well, let, let me explain. I mean, the, the question is very interesting. Um, and it's a fundamental question, you know, what is to stop um, a parliamentary majority uh, passing oppressive laws? Do we need formal mechanisms to stop that happening? Um, and uh, now, uh, the Human Rights Act has been in force for 15 years. Uh, before that, we didn't actually have a dictatorship in this country. Uh, we had a country which has probably the longest tradition of individual liberties and individual rights of any country in the world. Um, and those rights grew up as a result of our history. They grew up uh, as a result of struggles between Parliament and the King in the Civil War, um, the adoption of the Bill of Rights and the Glorious Revolution, uh, as a result of further development of rights uh, in the 18th century, and in fact as a part of a continuous historical process. And uh, uh, the famous late Victorian constitutional theorist A.V. Dicey asked the question, what stops Parliament passing oppressive laws? Well, he said, nothing formal does, but we are the freest country in the world because Parliament is representative and Parliament will not pass oppressive laws effectively on itself and the people it represents. Now, I think things have changed, as many people do. Things have changed since then. We, we now have a much more... Uh, professionalised political system uh, in, in which the me members of parliament are actually less representative, if you like, of ordinary people because of whatever party they tend to be more uh, a full-time political class uh, and we have vast numbers of laws that are being made by the executive, by regulation or, or by uh, uh, ill-considered bills which are guillotined in debate um, uh, without the sort of processes that in the heyday of Victorian times we had. So I, I do believe um, it's sensible to have a Bill of Rights uh, and that that should be uh, a benchmark against which uh, legislation is uh, assessed. Uh, I don't believe that like the US Bill of Rights it should be something that allows you to strike down laws passed by Parliament but what I do think is that it would be if Parliament wants to override it or bypass the rights, Parliament has to do that explicitly uh, and debate it and do it openly. What I don't accept is that there is any need, um, if we have an effective system of protection of our rights, there is any need for the sort of external linkage um, with the European Convention and the Strasbourg Court that we have at present. That is not essential to the protection of rights. There are many countries in the world that clearly protect their rights well that do not have such external linkages. Martin, you, you didn't mention just now that in the Bill of Rights that you've proposed in the report that you were suggesting everyone rushed out and got, 
Um, I think one of your proposals was that there should be three categories of rights holders. Am I right? British citizens, EU citizens and non-British citizens, which, as you rightly say, would involve decoupling from the European Convention on Human Rights, which uses no, no. the word everyone in every... In, no, 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 in, no. Have I misunderstood no, you? No, 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 Please no, no, clarify no. them. Well, you have, I think. Um, that, that proposal was... Uh, that part of the proposals is there are indeed certain rights which ought to be only enjoyed by citizens, such as the right to enter this country. Mm -hmm. um, but that is not a right owned, uh, in, to be enjoyed by you know, everyone in the world without restriction. Uh, it doesn't propose uh, taking away from non-citizens um, the rights that effectively are based on convention rights. Uh, I mean, just uh, that's a sort So of the word everyone would, would remain in your text, so as the you word, said. The, indeed, for the, for, the, for the principal rights and the ones based on the convention. Um, it, it's just Thank you for some, clarifying some rights that. Of, the more, of a more political nature as well that uh, would be restricted to citizens. Phil, um, do you think that uh, in a democracy you still need a Bill of Rights and if so, do you think there's any reason to keep the European Convention on Human Rights if we had our own domestic Bill of Rights entirely decoupled from it, which I think I'm not misquoting you to suggest that uh, Martin is proposing? I think uh, you know, recent history in this, in this country shows that we need, we absolutely need these protections. It's very clear that some politicians think that that they shouldn't be told by judges what to do. But in, in some situations, it's essential. We have a, a core set of fundamental rights standards that, that should be protected. And when uh, Parliament breaches that, then there ought to be a way of, of, of checks and balances. And the Human Rights Act, I think, is a, is a very carefully crafted piece of legislation that gives roles to public bodies. Fundamentally, it's about public bodies positively uh, complying with the Convention. But it gives roles to the courts, it gives roles to ministers, it gives roles to the Parliament. It's a very carefully crafted, balanced piece of legislation that, is, that does not in any way, I don't think, uh, contravene parliamentary sovereignty. It promotes uh, parliamentary engagement. And I think the other thing uh, that I would add to, 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 uh, to come back to what Martin said, of course, um, when the if and when the Strasbourg Court does find against uh, um, a country like the UK, uh, it will not impose uh, uh, requirements as to how the country should respond to that. The, the finding of the Strasbourg Court is that there's a, there's a violation of the Convention. But how the, the state responds is left to the state. It's left to the government. It's left to Parliament. And that's a fundamental part of the subsidiarity principle of the, of the oversight provided by the European system. Thank you, Phil. Uh, I'd like to see the views of the audience. Uh, do people, does anyone in the audience feel that our democracy is so perfect or indeed is in any way um, not improved by having a, a Bill of Rights? Feels that democracy would be purer and uh, as it should be if we didn't have a Bill of Rights. So show of hands who, who would like to repeal the Human Rights Act and not replace it with any kind of Bill of Rights. And let's see, one, one person. Well, it's so interesting, two. But it's so interesting when there's a view that only two people share that I have to call one of you to explain. So, sir, tell us your thinking on this very briefly, please. So I actually want to ask a question related to that. Um, if you ask a question, I can't guarantee it'll be answered, but that people might be able to answer it in you, as part you, of their you next should, question. I think you should answer it, but I'm always open to the panel. But... Um, so obviously there's been a lot of talk about the human rights. Um, Professor Leach, you, you mentioned earlier in your talk that there essentially should be a pan-European approach 
that human rights are rights enjoyed by all humans and not just for a certain set of people. Um, I actually took a flick through the consultation of um, Mr. Martin now, um, and I noticed that in some of your proposals for a Bill of Rights, it would only apply to, correct me if I'm wrong please, but it would only apply to British citizens in British territory, thereby excluding any kind of extraterritorial effect of the rights, um, apart from that which is sanctioned by um, um, political decision. So in light of all of this and in light of the very real possibility and incidents of rights being abused outside state borders, should any kind of future British Bill of Rights have extraterritorial effect beyond these borders? Okay, that's a very, very interesting question and I'm going to make sure that the panel, or at least, I think your question was addressed to Martin, was it? On the far left. Um, I'm going to ask them to try and address that question when they, when they address the, the, the final, the, the next question, okay? And to have it in their mind as well, and I'll remind them of it. Um, Caroline, briefly, do you, you're a Democrat. Do you think we need some kind of Bill of Rights? And if so, should it be decoupled from the European Convention or remain connected to it? Well, as you said, I think I was beginning to answer this question in my response to the, to the earlier question, and I, I just would want to add to that that I don't think I would much want to live in the country or the world that, that Martin's bill seems to envisage. I mean, first of all, we seem to have a range of different categories of, of citizen. It's a bit like Animal Farm. You know, some are going to be more equal than others, and some are going to have more rights than others. Um, and citizens should have more rights in certain respects than non-citizens. Martin, I'm going to say to you what, what you said to Alan. You've had your chance. Um, I, it, to and the extent I that the Martin questions. is also, um, you know, uh, harking back to some kind of Victorian time of, of, of parliaments then, well, of course, we had parliaments where you wouldn't have had any women in them. Um, they, they would only have been upper-class men. I mean, maybe that's the kind of world that Martin would like us to go back to. But I think things have <laughs> moved on since then, fortunately. Um, and I, I think it's very clear that uh, if you just look at the number of times that, um, y you know, that, that the... Um, uh, European uh, Court has, has been able to rule that, that things have not been done in, in, the, you know, in a way that's compatible with the Convention suggests that, that we can't sit back on our laurels and think that we're going to be um, rigorous uh, enough. We need that extra uh, framework. But just to pick up on the final thing that, that uh, Philip said, you know, we're not talking about a strike down um, uh, possibility here or the, or the right of strike down where you know, the European Court could just simply um, you know, nullify one of our laws. That's not what's being proposed. It is that it goes back to Parliament to decide how to try to bring laws into compatibility with the wider framework. So it does give the um, priority and, and the sovereignty to Parliament. So I don't think there's any real threat of, of that. I think what the real threat is that um, you know, we, we've got a government at the moment that will be quite happy to roll back uh, people's rights, particularly people who might not be of the same colour or, or the same background as, as, as you know, the, the ones they would like to prioritise. I think this is very dangerous. Um, and, and I think we should stand up and, and, and you know, protect it to the best of our ability. Thank you. Alan, uh, Bill of Rights, you think that we, should, we do need one in oh, our democracy? We had one. Um, you know, we've got the, the Human Rights Act and we've got the Convention. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very grateful to the chap there who said he'd read my letter in The Spectator. Uh, I'm glad someone does. But the, um, <laughs> the thing is, perhaps you know, those who take it for granted that our liberties are so secure that they'll never come under threat. You should be reading Voltaire's Candide uh, or Optimism. You, you know, all this for the best, the best possible of worlds. It's not, or even if it is, it won't be tomorrow. Uh, and you do need insurance policies against these attacks on your human rights. And the chap up there, yes, you should extend these insurance policies as far territorially as possible. 
Um, I don't believe in the infinite wisdom and integrity uh, and the lasting ability of politicians to get things right all the time. Uh, we do have to have uh, these defences and what I don't really understand from Martin's point of view is I don't yet know what it is that the Strasbourg court has actually done that has so undermined our human rights in this country that we have to withdraw from the whole system and go through this terribly complicated process of drawing up an alternative bill of human rights which will lead to an endless argument about what actually goes into it. So I'd, I'd really like to know why my human rights have somehow been undermined by the court in Strasbourg because I'm not aware of it. Some people would say also that it's unclear why Britain has to be the only country of 47 states in the Council of Europe who has to go through the process of withdrawing from the European Convention in order to introduce something called a, a Bill of Rights which we already have called the Human Rights Act but I wouldn't possibly say that because I'm an impartial <laughs> chair. Fine. I'm just <laughs> quoting others, just quoting others, not my view at all. Um, I think we should move swiftly on uh, to a question from Ben Sale, who is a Year 13 student at Overton Grange School. Very unfortunately, Ben can't be with us tonight, I'm sure, because he's studying for A-level so that he gets his grade so he can come here next year. Good luck, Ben. So, good luck, Ben. I hope you're listening somehow, um, or will be when, when you watch the podcast. But Amy Williams, our Twitter guru, is um, going to read out his question. So uh, Ben's question is, given that the convention was introduced in response to the atrocities and abuses that took place during World War II and to protect democratic principles from the Soviet Union, does the Charter seem out of date when used against nations without such politically extreme movements, such as Britain and modern Germany, for comparatively minor cases such as votes for those in prison? So, Caroline, the question really is, you know, is it all very well in when it was drafted the European Convention on Human Rights. We know what it was for then, but what do we need it now for, and in particular, bearing in mind prisoners' votes and actually that gentleman, and you didn't say your name actually, sir? My name is Benson. And you're from? I'm Sorry? Oh, you're from PPP down the road. Excellent. <laughs> so we just got it on, on the podcast. Um, bearing in mind extraterritorial to extraterritoriality, which is another idea, i.e. that these rights should not just apply to people here, but when we have troops abroad or when we uh, arrest people in Iraq, that the convention should apply that far. That is not an idea I think we can be absolutely confident was in the head of the drafters. You know, we might have needed it then. Is it right that it's been interpreted in the way it has been now? Um, I think, sadly, we do still need it as much today as we did mm -hmm. then. Um, you, you know, if we're thinking about some of the worst aspects of, of physical um, violence to, to, to other people, sadly, that is still going on uh, now. If you're thinking about things like some of the, the, the torture allegations that come out, um, you know, I'm thinking again of, of people like Barbara Ahmed and, and Tala Arsene, who, who have been under, you know, serious... Um, attack in, 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 in this country. There are other people who are making um, very strong claims about what's happened to them in, in, in prison. Um, you know, I, I just think it's enormously complacent to think that we might not need this kind of, um, this kind of act today. I think we, we, we clearly um, do. So on the one level, I don't think, unfortunately, that savage acts of cruelty are something of the past. They carry on now, albeit perhaps in, in different ways. 
And at the other extreme, I think that issues like whether or not prisoners have the vote actually do matter a, a lot. And, and, I, and I think it's, you know, you know of course, there, there, there are different um, levels of, of, of seriousness in one sense. If one's life is at, is at risk, that's clearly more serious than, than, than if it's not. But essentially, I think it's quite a dangerous thing to try to start saying, well, which, is, which right is more important than, than, than another. And, and political rights around... Um, being a, a citizen when, you, when you're imprisoned, you are losing your liberty, but there's no reason to say that, that means that you have to lose your, your identity, your, your, your citizenship in terms of, of ever having any hope of, of, of being able to be rehabilitated into a, into a system. So if we accept that prison is partly at least around rehabilitation as well as it being about punishment, then it seems to me that giving people a stake in the kind of um, society that they're going to be released back into uh, is more likely rather than less likely to lead to them having um, a, a, a stake in that and therefore rehabilitating more, more effectively. So um, for me, prisoners should lose their liberty but not lose their, their, their civic um, identity, if you like. And, and that's why I think that they were right to talk about uh, the issue of prisoners' votes. But as I say, I think that um, we surely, sadly, can't be complacent about whether or not uh, you know, a huge amount of, of, of savagery, frankly, is happening in many places today. Thank you. Emily, things have all gone too far. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, some members of your party weren't too keen on the European Court of Human Rights saying that prisoners, at least uh, some prisoners, uh, at least there shouldn't be a blanket ban against all prisoners having the right to vote. I don't think it was entirely popular with all of the front bench of your party. Oh no, I mean, let's be, let's be quite clear about this. I mean, Labour's position on this is perfectly clear. We're against prisoners having the vote. Um, I mean, I understand entirely the arguments about rehabilitation. I understand entirely about the importance of politicians having a uh, focusing properly on prisons and perhaps prisoners having a vote might help those, those politicians to focus on prisons. Uh, but Labour's position is perfectly clear. Um, and we are against um, uh, prisoners having the vote. Um, we certainly hope that, um, that in relation to the um, convention and our duties in relation to the convention, um, we hope that the subsidiarity principle will develop sufficiently to accommodate Britain's um, strong views. Um, and that's really all I think I can say that can be helpful. Thank you. Alan, your chance uh, to lay out the stall of your new deal. Um, well, <laughs> we have lots of policies to sort out. Uh, prisoners' voting rights is on top of the list. And I, I must say, personally, I, I take the point about rehabilitation, but I, I'm not really in favour of giving voting rights to prisoners on the grounds that by committing crimes, they have shown their contempt for the rights of others and that they don't respect the rule of law. That's why they're in prison in the first place. And really, if you <laughs> restrict their entire liberty... Uh, I, I mean, restricting their voting rights seems to be rather minor in comparison. I mean, if you give someone 10 years and clink and then say, oh, by the way, you're not going to get the right to vote for the Liberal Party or the Lib Dems or the Greens, I mean, which is the most horrible thing that's going to happen to them? Be, yeah, being, locked to up, them. being locked up for 10 years and being deprived of the privilege of voting for Caroline or someone? I, 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 don't think, I don't think this is serious politics. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, on the other hand, just because the, the court says the prisoners should have rights, 
Again, that's no reason to say, oh, I'm going to pull out of the Human Rights Convention, do away with the court, have a new bill, you know, start from scratch all over again. That's an equally silly reaction. But, I mean, I, I, I think that there are obviously going to be decisions, you know, in time that you, you'll disagree with. All right, you just have to live with that, you'll disagree with them. When it comes to prisoners' voting rights, I say, this is something I disagree with, but it's not going to make me give up my uh, faith in human rights or the legislation. Thank you. Alan, I imagine this is a question you're entirely sympathy, in sympathy well, with, and I therefore assume that you regret the fact that the European Court of Human Rights has done things like leading to protections against phone hacking, um, overruled the prohibition on wearing a cross at work, um, the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Northern Ireland, all these issues that the, the drafters of the Convention would never have had in their minds when they drafted the Convention. I'm assuming you entirely regret that the European Court of Human Rights has ruled those ways over the years. No, I, what I will focus on uh, is voting rights prisoners. Uh, which is the subject of the question. Um, and, uh, Not I mean, entirely. I think it's a broader question, that, no, but by all no, means, no, no, well, interpret it in that way. He did, indeed. In the question. Um, and the, Sorry, is the microphone not working? Yeah, voting rights. Uh, the, the, the point of the question uh, was is the convention being applied in a way, uh, instead of dealing with uh, the sort of fundamental human rights abuses? Uh, it was designed to deal with after the war. Is it being applied to comparatively minor and debatable, well, I don't think he used debatable in the question, but comparatively minor infractions by countries such as ours, which are in general compliant with high human rights standards? And prisoner voting, uh, I think, is a particularly clear case of judicial overreach. Um, now, Caroline quite validly put forward arguments why she feels prisoners should have the right to vote. Now, that is a perfectly respectable argument. It's a debate we can have. But that's not really the issue involved. The issue is whether Parliament should be compelled by this international structure uh, to, give, uh, to, to change the law and to give prisoners, uh, or at least certain categories of prisoners, a right to vote, even if Parliament thinks that is not the right thing to do. Uh, and the, the problem here uh, is that the uh, article on which this is based, uh, Article 3 of the First Protocol to the Convention, does not contain an individual right to vote. The words do not contain such a right. Not only that, but examination of the uh, preparations of the treaty indicates that such an individual right to vote was deliberately excluded uh, from that article when it was drafted and agreed to. And uh, we've had the court inventing an individual right to vote that was never intended to be in the convention to start with, and then adding a sort of superstructure, because it had to, of sort of treating, uh, qualifying it as if it were a qualified right, uh, rather like uh, Articles 10 or Article 8, which contain qualifications. Neither the right nor its qualifications are, are set out in the text of the protocol or the convention. They have been entirely invented by the court. The court has then said the United Kingdom is in breach of its uh, requirements of its doctrine of qualification, all without any foundation. And uh, I think in riposte to a remark that Alan made um, uh, about trusting politicians, I would rather uh, that uh, uh, politics is conducted by politicians and not by judges, uh, it, it purportedly uh, in, in the name of enforcing laws. 
Now, extraterritorial edge, do you want me to... Unfortunately, we're going to run no. out of time. I did, I did okay. warn you that unfortunately there wouldn't be time to okay. fully answer your question. But uh, can you give a 30-second uh, res response to Martin? Okay, I'll let you have a minute. Okay, I, mean, I think the fundamental issue, one of the fundamental issues here is this, this notion about the, how you apply an international human rights convention like the European Convention. It is an international charter. It contains rights that are broadly framed. It has to be that way. It talks about the right to respect for private and family life, for example. It, it's fundamental, as has been said, that the, uh, the way in which the court interprets that is, is it, it interprets it as a living instrument. So it's not about trying to work out what the court thinks, uh, what the court thinks the, 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 uh, those who drafted the convention meant by private life. It's about what we think of it now. It takes account of changes in society. It takes account of changes in, in te technological uh, changes. It takes account of, of changes in science. It has, I think, to be that way. The court also applies a dynamic interpretation. But this is, as, as Emily was saying earlier, something that we see in the common law. Look at the way in which marital rape law was developed in this country. That was a common law dynamic interpretation. So it's not a, it's not a new uh, way of interpreting the law that's being imposed from, from Europe. I, from knew, I knew, Professor Leach, that you would be able to answer that question in one minute absolutely brilliantly and eloquently. <laughs> I, I think we, I know, I think we've just got time to, for 30 second answers to a final question by Brienne Allen who's a legal researcher. Can she put her hand up, please? Um, there she is. And I'm going to take it absolutely, um, Martin, Phil, Caroline, Emily, and Alan, and you can give 30-second um, answers to this question. Okay. Well, the question I submitted was actually a question posed by Lord Bingham many years ago when he asked in relation to the ECHR rights which of these rights would we wish to discard? Are any of them trivial, superfluous or unnecessary? And are any of them un-British? Uh, my answer to that is there are none of them that we would wish to discard. Uh, but what I think we should be cutting down or discarding is the over-interpretation uh, that has been applied to many of them. You won't be surprised to hear that I wouldn't discard any of them. I think we have a workable Bill of Rights through the Human Rights Act and, uh, it, and I agree with the dissenters on the Bill of Rights Commission, Philip Sands and Helena Kennedy, that to open this out now uh, plays into the hands of those who want to weaken the system and even withdraw from the Convention as we've been hearing this week. Uh, I agree with, with uh, what was just uh, said. The only thing that's bothering me, and I'm desperately trying to find the, um, the bit in Article 5, was what Alan was saying about the um, people of unsound mind, alcoholics or drug addicts or vagrants. And I might, I might just put in a, <laughs> um, uh, a concern about whether or not we're going to uh, lock those up because apparently at the moment um, the, the convention um, means that uh, they are not protected. Um, so I might just have a, a concern about that, but a serious answer to a serious question. I think that the dangers of unravelling this, however much we might want to tinker at the edges of it, the dangers of unravelling it are so much greater than the chances of improving it that I think what we should do is keep what we have, but crucially get real education about it, um, you know, right from our schools and upwards. When the Human Rights Act came in, there wasn't that much that was done to really explain what it was all about. And I think that's part of the reason that it's been so easy, really, for it to become something that gets, um, uh, you know, attacked and so forth. So let, let's keep it, but let's also up the education on it as well.
So uh, there's nothing I would discard, but given that I've got 30 seconds, can I say there are other things I'd like to discard in relation to, to Strasbourg? I'd like to discard the queues. I think that it is inefficient at the moment. I think that it shouldn't take as long as it does you know, for cases to get to the court. So I think that we need to do that because I think it undermines the credibility of the court to wait for years. I would, um, I would also, to be honest, ask the courts to take, you know, take, take countries to take this a little bit more seriously and have some of the judges need to be of higher calibre than they are. I mean, I think that Britain takes it very seriously, but to be honest, I'm not going to name names, but some countries, some of the judges... Yeah, and I think that we also need to be able to develop um, the, 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 the um, uh, subsidiarity. So we need to have an idea that there are different countries that do have different cultures and that it is still consistent within human rights for there to be slightly different interpretations in different countries in particular circumstances and for which we need to have high calibre judges, we need to have a well-informed Europe and we need to commit to human rights. <laughs> Last word with you, Alan. Uh, well, I'm happy to endorse that the, the Labour spokesman's uh, views on uh, the whole. Your MPs, though. Sorry. Your MPs. No, this is a oh, private discussion for oh, after. Right. <laughs> well, for the for the moment, anyway. <laughs> well, I, I think I think we've got the picture. I think on that note, we should thank our wonderful illustrious panel. instructed to read out two upcoming wonderful events to follow. On Friday the 11th of October at 6 o'clock in the Wolfson Theatre, we'll be hearing from Professor Lawrence Douglas in an event co-organised with the Department of International Relations. Don't all rush off at once. I won't be giving you any wine if you don't listen to me uh, with these <laughs> announcements. A kangaroo in Obama's court, Nashiri, before the Guantanamo Military Commission. And on Tuesday, the 10th of December, UN International Human Rights Day, we are honouring our dear friend and colleague, the late Professor Stan Cohen, with a tribute event spanning his life and career. Full information of all these events are on the LSE website, and those wishing to keep informed of our events should sign up to receive email alerts and follow us on Twitter. Before you go, I know you're trying to get into the front and have the wine, before you go, I want to give an additional thanks, please, to the organisers of this event this evening. You can just begin to imagine what is involved in organising a question time event like this. I mean, we don't have the 350 staff paid £600,000 a year that some would say that some of the BBC are paid. We have two members of staff who've done all the work. And they are Zoe Williams, sorry, <laughs> one person in my mind, Zoe Gillard, the Human Rights Centre, the Centre for the Study of Human Rights Manager, and Amy Williams, my colleague, who is leaving the LSE today. And so I think she deserves a specially strong uh, clap, but please let's thank them both from our hearts.